I want to remind you of two or three things before we continue with our study of Romans 9, and that specifically is the three things that we pointed out in our previous portion of our study that are absolutely vital concepts to understanding Romans 9, 10, and 11. I repeat very briefly, those two things are, number one, the fact that there are two Israels. Verses 6 through 8 is emphatic on this point. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The fact that there are two Israels, one being the nation only, the nation and its time on earth and its blessings and the covenant God established with it. The second Israel is what the national Israel pictures, the entire spiritual Israel of God, all saved people from every race, kindred, tongue, and people on the earth, all of those that shall be with God in glory, the history of national Israel on this earth for its time was established by God as a picture or a type of the spiritual Israel. And how God dealt with the nation is intended to be a picture to teach us how God deals with the true and real spiritual Israel. The worst thing that people can do, and it's done continuously, is to confuse these two Israels, to blend them together as if they were one and the same, or worse, to fail to make any distinction at all. So first of all, we must remember that Paul teaches that there are two Israels we must keep distinct. Second, what Paul tells us about the seed. The holy seed is counted for the whole. The holy seed is counted for the whole. Verse 7, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And then finally in verse 8, the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The important thing to remember here is that God counts the redeemed portion of Israel in place of all of Israel. It's a grave mistake for men to look in the Bible and take statements about Israel and assume that that applies blanket coverage to all of the Israeli race or all of the Hebrew race or all of the Jews or all of the nation indiscriminately. This is not so. After the captivity, from that time forward, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, God has counted only the small spiritual remnant within Israel as the true Israel. The nation just happened to benefit because it was tagging along, so to speak. So the second most important thing we must remember is that the holy seed is counted for the whole. The children of the promise are counted for the seed. The third thing we must remember is that salvation is not by any good or evil that man has done, but it is by the will of God. We're told this by Paul in verse 11, speaking about the difference between Jacob and Esau. And the fact that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And Paul's explanation in verse 11 is, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that call it. And so we learn the third most important concept that we have to remember if we wish to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11. And that is, 
that salvation is not by doing good or evil, but it is by God's will. In other words, it's not by anything man can do, but it is by what God does when it is impossible for man to do anything. Now, Paul taught this point right after he taught about Abraham and Sarah and Rebekah and Isaac. We remember the peculiar thing about Sarah was that she was promised a child after she was unable to bear due to age. In fact, she had been barren all of her life. God promised Abraham that he would return after a season and Rebecca would conce- uh, uh, Sarah would conceive and have a child. Sarah laughed about that. And you remember the Lord, as he was eating with Abraham outside the tent, said, Why dost thou laugh? And Sarah responded and said, But I did not laugh. And he said, Yea, thou didst. The upshot of it all was when Isaac was finally born, they named him Laughter. That's what the word Isaac means. But you see, Sarah was barren and impossible to bear child. So they got up an idea, she and Abraham, I'm repeating myself, I know, but it's an extremely important point. She and Abraham devised a means to help God have her have the child since she was unable. So they decided that Abraham would lie with Hagar, her handmaid, and have a child by her, and Sarah would call that the child of promise. They did that, and God did not accept Ishmael. Well, it went on through several years, and then Abraham became, due to age, unable to bear children. Now we've got a woman and a man, well and past their 90s, neither one able to have children anymore. Now we've reached a situation where it is impossible for man to do anything to have children. Sarah can't conceive and can't bear children, Abraham can't conceive. They're both dead in the flesh as far as childbearing. Now God goes to work. What does God do? He makes Sarah fruitful again. He makes Abraham fruitful again. They conceive and bear a child, Isaac. Ishmael is cast out, and Isaac is manifestly the child of promise. See, child of promise means what God does when it's impossible for man to do anything. And it's the children of the promise that are counted for the seed. It's the children of God that result not from anything man can do, but by what God does when it is impossible for man to do anything. See, the children neither having been born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, it was works, to try to fulfill the promise with Hagar and her child. But not of works, but of him that willeth, which is God. So these are the three important things that we have to remember, and Paul lays them out for us in the first 13 verses of this chapter. And we will see the whole edifice of Paul's logic in in the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11, built upon these three concepts. They are absolutely vital in order to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11, in order to understand the book of Romans, in order to understand the plan of Christianity itself. I repeat, those three things are, one, there are two Israels, two, the holy seed is counted for the whole, three, it is not by any good or evil done by man, but by God's calling that salvation results. Now, Paul builds his whole argument Henceforth, 
on these three principles, having established them carefully in the first 13 verses. I've mentioned before that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is probably the tightest piece of logical reasoning in Scripture. The only way to fully understand these three chapters is to go through them one verse at a time, noticing exactly how Paul develops his logic. Most religious systems do not do that. Most religious systems, in fact, virtually all that I know anything about, do not take Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a unit. They break it up into little pieces like you'd smash a chunk of ice and then grab a handful of chips that you want. They break it up in little pieces and they take this couple of verses and that couple of verses and that couple of verses that, suit, that fits their system and suits their purposes. And they ignore and play down the others. We're not going to do that. We're going to go through all the verses of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I think you'll see an entirely different system presented in the words of Paul than we've ever heard taught in the systems of man. All right, so much for our review of the first 13 verses. Now, what happens now, Paul having laid his main principles down, his main three lines of argument that are going to carry through the rest of these chapter 10 and 11 and 9, he then begins to deal with objections that human beings raise to these concepts. And there are two objections that Paul deals with. One in verses 14 through 18 is the first objection. That's not fair. The second objection is found in verses 19 through 24. Well, since we all do God's will, then why is anybody punished? Now, we'll take each of these in turn and look at what man reasons against the will of God and what Paul answers to man's reasoning. So in verse 14, Paul raises the first human objection. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. In other words, is God unrighteous to do it this way? Is God unfair to do it this way? Is God cheating somebody to do it this way? Is God being mean and hateful and arbitrary to do it this way? Is God unrighteous because there are two Israels and most of national Israel will go to hell? Is God unrighteous because the holy seed is counted for the whole? Is God unfair and unjust because he takes the, the elect remnant of Israel and counts them in the place of the nation? Is that, is that unfair with God? Is that wrong? Is God low down, mean, evil, sneaky, unfair, and carnal because he elects some and does not elect others? Is it unfair of God to refuse to consider human works and human will and salvation, but instead to base salvation upon his own righteousness, the sacrifice of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sins of man, and then to apply that righteous work of Christ to individuals that it pleases God to give it to? Is that unfair and unrighteous with God instead of working out a system where anybody can have a chunk that wants to? Paul's answer to these questions is, God forbid. No, it is not unrighteous of God to handle salvation this way. And in this portion of Scripture and in the objection that follows, he begins to give us reasons why it's not unfair with God and reasons why God is not arbitrary. 
What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For, explanation, for, he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. See, this is something that he told Moses back when he was dealing through Moses to deliver Israel from Pharaoh. And the principle of graciousness that God laid down through Moses was, I'm the one that decides. I, God, make the decision. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. See the I wills of God? It's God's will, not man's will. What part did Israel play in delivering themselves from Egypt? None. Stop and think about it. God sent Moses down. Moses told the people of Israel what God was going to do. Well, when they first got the message, they thought that was wonderful. They clapped and cheered and whistled and had a good time. But then the heat came down. Moses went in and talked to Pharaoh and told him what he was going to, what God was going to do. Pharaoh said, it's not going to happen. And Pharaoh began putting the pressure on the children of Israel to try to break their wills and break their spirit. He succeeded. From that day forward, from the time Pharaoh began to tighten the screws on the Israelites, what was their relationship to Moses? They got mad with him. They got madder and madder with him. What have you done to come down to us and raise the, Pharaoh, uh, the wrath of Pharaoh against us? Why don't you just shut up, Moses? Why don't you just back off and cool it? You're getting us in hot water. Well, God, Moses worried about that. And he would go to God in prayer, and I'm, I'm using my own words, and he would say, well, Lord, I'm doing what you told me, and it's getting worse. <laughs> what's going to happen? I mean, what's happening, Lord? And the Lord just tell him, go back in there and hit him up again. So Moses would go back in and put it to Pharaoh again. Pharaoh would get twice as mad, tighten down on the children of Israel, and they'd have another fit and holler and yell at Moses. But you see, the upshot of it all was that God brought them out, and it wasn't with their cooperation and help, because after the first time or two, Israel struggled against God and Moses the whole way through. Even after God brought them out, and they were standing on the shore of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's chariot army was approaching, they wanted to surrender and give in then. And they blessed old Moses out. What have you done? Brought us out here to die in the wilderness. <laughs> So does that sound like people accepting the Lord as their personal Savior? Or does it sound like people griping about the whole plan and system? So what did God do? He gave Moses a message, and Moses turned around and told the children of Israel, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show thee this day. And, of course, we know what happened to Pharaoh in the chariots, don't we? Every step of the way, in this greatest of all historical pictures of the salvation of God, the people God saving are not cooperating, not accepting, not being good folks, but struggling, complaining, griping, resisting, and fighting every step of the way. And the message of Paul is, as God saved Israel, so God saves everybody. As God saved Israel, so God saves everybody. He saved Israel by election. God saves everybody by election. 
Israel struggled against it until the point of deliverance. So everyone struggles against the concepts of God's grace until the point of deliverance. As it was not by the works or cooperation of Israel that they were delivered from Egypt, so it is not by the works, will, or cooperation of anybody that they're saved and delivered from sin, but by the overweening, delivering grace and mercy of God. As God saved Israel, so God saves everybody. That's the pattern. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Did he deliver the Nubians? No. Did he deliver any of the subject tribes that, is, that Egypt had conquered? No. Did he deliver the Arabians who were paying taxes to Pharaoh? No. Did it deliver any of the Canaanite tribes that were under tribute to Pharaoh? No. Did it deliver the Libyan people who had been enslaved by Pharaoh and pressed into naval service? No. He delivered the Israelites. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. God delivered the Israelites and no one else. Not with are because of their cooperation, for they struggle against it, but by his own will and by his own compassion. As God saved Israel, so God saves everybody. So then, Paul reasons in verse 16, watch this closely, so then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. No, there, there are two great systems that man has conceived of to get saved by. And these systems are going to pop up in Romans 10 again, in verses 6 through about verses uh, 13. When we get to Romans 10, 6 through 13, these same two systems will pop up again, and Paul will deal with them at length there. These two systems that mankind has devised, and it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about professing Christian systems or whether we're talking about Hinduism or Buddhism or Taoism or Mohammedanism. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a secret little cult of witch doctors down in the Zambezi River in Central Africa somewhere. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Tinglet Eskimos up in Alaska. It really makes no difference. When you start looking at human religion, it's amazing when you get the clutter out of the way how samey-same everything is down at the bottom. There are really only two systems of religion. The two systems of religion are that we're saved by will or we're saved by works. Either you're saved by something your mind does or you're saved by something your body does. That's it. You say, well, do I have to accept the Lord as my personal Savior to get saved? Well, that's a work, that's a work of your mind, isn't it? In fact, that's the argument of most people that advocate that system. 
they say, well, it's not anything you do. You know, have you ever heard this? There's nothing you can do to get saved. You're saved by grace. All you have to do is. You've heard that, haven't you? I hear it on Sunday morning radio a lot of times when I listen. There's nothing you can do. You're saved by grace. All you have to do is. Well, if there's nothing I can do, why is there something I can do? You see, the argument is that what you do with your mind isn't really works. Works is only what you do with your body. But what you do with your mind, that's not work. Tell that to a nuclear physicist. <laughs> Tell that to a brain surgeon. Somebody said, I thought a brain surgeon was what he did with his hands. Yes, but if he doesn't know what exactly he's going to do with his head before he ever opens the skull, he's going to kill that person. Most of what men do in work is with their mind, and their hand follows after. But the theory is that what's done with the mind isn't work. Well, that fits a lot of scriptures and seems to explain a lot of places, but there are other places it just doesn't fit and doesn't explain. We'll get to some of those later on. But what I want to show is, is that the human salvation systems can be divided into two, basically. What you do with your mind and what you do with your body. So we have one system that says, well, it's not based on anything you do with your body. It's just a mental commitment and a mental decision, and you're saved. There are several versions of that. We don't need to go into the different versions. They're all the same when it comes to being saved by an act of will. Then we have the systems that, where you get saved by an act of the body. Catholicism is based upon this, a ceremonial reenactment of the death of Christ. In order to really get saved, you've got to eat that wafer that's been soaked in wine and blessed by the priest and transmuted into the blood and body of Christ. You've got to do something. You've got to say those beads regularly. You've got to get that cross driven on your head with holy oil or water or whatever. That incense pot's got to be swung over your crib. There's 10,000 different ways the system comes down, but when it comes down, it says there's something that must be done or you'll burn in hell forever. All of the sacrificial systems that the Jews had perverted from what God gave through Moses were based on salvation by works. They felt they had to physically take that animal and physically kill it and physically scatter its blood or they could not be saved and go to heaven. See, that's ceremonial salvation, salvation by something the body does. Churches of Christ today and branches of them like the Christian church believe that. They believe that you've got to have a minister put you down underwater physically and bring you up again or you can't go to heaven. If you're not baptized, there's no hope for you in heaven and baptism by immersion. See, something you do with the body. Churches of Christ will continue on after that and they will say, in addition to getting saved the first time by getting down in water and getting out of it properly, you've now got to do good works all your life because if you stop doing good works, you can get lost and have to get saved again by something else you do. Methodists believe that. You can be saved and lost and saved and lost, and every time you're lost, you get saved again by something you do to get right with God. All schemes of salvation come down to two. Well, the Mohammedans don't even pretend to be Christian. In fact, one of the worst ways to insult the Ayatollah Khomeini is to imply that he might be Christian. But what does he believe? 
He believes you get saved by something that you do. The first thing of which is you'd better be born an Arab, <laughs> a son of Ishmael. It's very difficult for you if you're not an Ishmaelite. <laughs> so you've got to pick your parents. You've got to pick the right parents, first thing you've got to do. But assuming you've done that, there's lots of other good things that you must do. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do right by the law of Mohammed. You've got to keep certain of the rules. You've got to pray so many times a day. You've got to face in the right direction. You've got to use a rug. And ideally, you have to be led by the chance of a mullah. And if you really want to put the icing on the cake, at least once in your life, go to Mecca and kneel and pray at the Holy Rock. If you do those things, you've got it aced. But you see, salvation is by something your body does. You look at a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or a Taoist. You're saved by something that your body does. A Hindu holy man believes that if you learn how to stand on one leg like a crane and stare into the sun for hours at a time, you've probably achieved a level of holiness that will guarantee that you'll move on into nirvana when you die, or at least into a higher realm of existence in your reincarnation. You at least won't be reborn as an earthworm for your sins. Something that your body does. Every little scheme of salvation that man comes up with is either based upon accepting some system of ideas, making some sort of mental commitment, or by accepting some system of works and going through some ceremonial procedure. And then sometimes, of course, they'll mix the two and really scramble them up. To be completely fair and honest, Catholicism is a blend of these two. But you see what Paul says. Paul says, so then it is not of him that willeth. Paul says it's not done this way. Nor of him that runneth. It's not done by works. It's not done by anything the body does. Salvation is not by anything that's done with a mind. And it's not by anything that's done with a body. Well, then how is it done? It is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It is of God that showeth mercy. Notice how that laps immediately back to verse 11, 12, and 13. The children, having not yet been born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. How was Israel saved? Why did God pick Israel? God picked Israel because he wanted to and for no other reason. Not for anything they did, anything they represented, or anything it would be foreseen that they would do. In fact, God told Israel over and over, just as he told Moses over and over, that the future history of Israel would be one of rebellion against God, disobedience against God, and finally God cutting them off and scattering them among the nations for their stiff-necked disobedience unto him. And that happened, didn't it? So see, it wasn't for any of their foreseen good works because God didn't foresee any good works. He foresaw bad works. Not based on human will, not based on human effort, but based solely on God's will. I'd like to show you something interesting from John chapter 1. 
I want to show you a very famous verse and then an almost totally unknown verse. <laughs> the almost totally unknown verse comes immediately after the famous verse. The famous verse ends with a comma. So the famous verse is composed of the first half of a sentence. And it's very widely and well known. The second half of the sentence is almost totally unknown to religious people because it's almost never mentioned by religious teachers. But as we read these two verses, this one sentence, I want you to remember what Paul has been saying in Romans 9. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll begin reading with verse 11, where Christ came to the Jews. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now that's the very famous first half of the sentence. Here's the almost totally unknown second half of the sentence, the very next verse. Which were born, were born. See, this is something they already were by the time the first half of the sentence happened. Which were born, not of blood, they didn't inherit it because they were Jews. See, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't because mom and daddy had them circumcised on the eighth day. It wasn't because mom and daddy prayed them through. It wasn't because mom and daddy prayed a priest to pray for them and deliver them from purgatory. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It wasn't of their own will. It wasn't of their own choice. It wasn't of their own decision. It was not. Not. They were not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. But how were they born? But of God. Or as Paul would say, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Or as he would say again, so then they that are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise shall be counted for the seed. You see, this is a beautiful example of how people take part of the Bible to prove a system and ignore oftentimes the very next verse, which takes the system they're trying to prove and refutes it. There is no way the free will system can survive verse 13. But verse 12 is almost always lifted out of context as a proof text of the free will system. That's how it's done, people. A lot of times folks ask me the question, how can there be a thousand different denominations in the United States all claiming to be Christian and all, literally a thousand, there are more than that. Frank S. Mead publishes a book and it's in something like its 20th or 30th edition now called A Handbook of American Denominations. My older edition has about 900 and something denominations listed. There are well over 1,200 listed in the new edition. How can there be over 1,200 different denominations all claiming to be Christian, all using the same book 
and they all believe something different. How can that be, preacher? I've had people ask me this time and again. That's how it can be. Those 1,200 denominations each pick different verses they like to give the appearance of having Bible proof for their doctrine. Not one of them picks every verse as proof of their doctrine. That's how it's done. It's which verse you pick. Then you're using the Bible to prove your doctrine, right? I've heard it said before. I've said it before. And I'll say it again. You let me pick those verses that I want to, and I'll prove anything from this Bible, provided you let me leave out the verses I want to also. But if you pick all the verses, take it as it comes, just the way it says, the book will give you one doctrine. Remember me mentioning the peculiar fact that in the Scripture, when the doctrine of God is spoken of, it's always in singular? When the word faith relative to God and God's people is spoken of, it's always in the singular. The doctrine of God. The faith of God. But when we see references to false doctrines, we read about doctrines, plural, of devils. You see, there are many doctrines. God has one doctrine. That's an extremely important point to remember. I, quoted, I, I referred you to John 1 here as an example of what Paul is saying in Romans 9, 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The people that accepted Christ, confessed him, and believed on him were already born of God. And they were not born of God by anything they did, their mamas and daddies did, or by inheriting a racial identity from their mamas and daddies. But they were born of God. A direct act of God's grace when it was impossible for man to do anything. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And then he continues to expand on his explanation, and he says, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. You see, God used Pharaoh. Because God knew that Pharaoh would not let God's people go. Not only did God know he wouldn't let his people go, God intended to add some works of his own to guarantee Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go. Because look at that next verse, verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. My question is, did Pharaoh have a choice at all? in what he did. That's something to think about, isn't it? Did Pharaoh have a choice that we're told everybody has? How could God harden him and give him a choice at the same time? That's why you don't often hear verses like this preached on. Look at Psalm 76, verse 10. Psalm 76, verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. The wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. 
You see, what we can learn from that verse, if we think about it, is, is that mankind has a lot of evil in his bosom. All of us have evil within us. God is merciful to us in that he restrains a lot of our evil. He does not suffer us to do all the nasty stuff we could do if we were completely free to do it. He just puts a stop leash on it. And everybody from the very most powerful to the least have a portion of God's restraining grace. He holds back a portion of the evil that's in men's hearts so that no man is fully capable of doing the evil that's really potentially in him to do. Now, is that merciful or is that bad? Is it mercy or is it nasty, low-down, rotten, stinking unfairness on God's part to keep us from doing evil? That's good, isn't it? Can you conceive of anybody that would argue that it's rotten on God's part to let somebody be as rotten as they could be instead of holding some of it back so that there's always a degree of it that's restrained so they never can be as potentially rotten as they really are? It's hard to conceive of someone arguing that way, isn't it? But you see, this is the way things work. The wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. God lets loose only that wrath of man that's going to accomplish his objectives and tend to God's glory. The rest of it God restrains. Now you can begin to see how he hardened Pharaoh. I will agree if God came down to Pharaoh and grabbed him by his arm and bent it way up behind his back till his ligaments creaked and said, you tell them they can't go or I'll bust it off at the sockets and beat you over the head with a stump. If God did it that way, God would be rotten, low down, and sneaky. I'll, 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 I'll affirm that. But God didn't do that. God didn't come down to Pharaoh and make him not let him go. All God had to do to harden Pharaoh was not put anything in him at all. Plenty enough was in him already. All God had to do was reduce the amount of restraint of evil. That's all. Just let a little more out. And a little more out. And a little more out. That's all he had to do. How does the sun harden mud into rock-hard clay? How does the sun do that? Does the sun put some sort of mysterious, invisible substance into that clay that slowly makes it turn into a rock-hard substance? No. What the sun does is by evaporation through heat, it draws the moisture out of the mud. And the mud, by degrees, becomes the naturally hardened, rock-like substance it would be without any moisture in it to start with. That's how God hardened Pharaoh. He took restraining grace out of him. And let him do exactly what people claim they want to do. I want free will. I want to do what I want to. So God said to Moses, I mean, God said to Pharaoh, do anything you want to then. Go ahead, do it. So he did what he wanted to. <laughs> Got killed for it too, didn't he? And took all the firstborn of Egypt with him. That's how God did it. He didn't have to put anything in Pharaoh to make him mean. He was mean as a snake from birth. Just like you and I are by nature, unless God restrains our evil by His grace, and unless God goes even further and changes our hearts and puts His grace in us. 
That's the mechanism God used. He just reduced the restraining grace. And Pharaoh got meaner and meaner and meaner. Why? Because that was his nature. That was his desire. That's what he wanted to do. And he was freed more and more to do what he wanted to do. And he did it. And if unless God is merciful, every one of us would be like Pharaoh. If God pulled his restraining grace out of your heart and mind, God have mercy on what would happen in this world. And there's coming a day he'll do it. Over in the book of Thessalonians, looking toward end time and talking about the restraining grace of the Holy Spirit, we see there that he that letteth will let. And the word let really it means to hinder in Old English. He that letteth will let. He that holds back will hold back until he be taken out of the way. Sometime right before the coming of Christ, God is going to pull the complete restraining grace of the Holy Spirit out of this world. And for a short season, there will be nothing, do you hear me? Nothing of God in this world to hold back men's hearts from the evil they think to do. And for a short while, they will do it without hindrance. That will be the most awful period of time this world's history has ever seen. It will be the time when God lets the human race finally do what they wanted to do all along. Anything they wanted to do without the slightest hindrance from God, He'll give it to them. And it will be so unbearable that as the Scripture says, except those days were shortened, there should be no flesh shaved alive. No, God didn't have to put anything in Pharaoh to make him do it. He didn't have to twist his arm to make him do it. He didn't have to be mean and low down and rotten like Satan has to do and stick lies and false doctrines in people's heads to trick them. All God had to do was let Pharaoh do what was in his heart. And his heart was rotten to the core, just as all of our hearts are without the grace of God. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. That's how it's done. So you see, God's not unrighteous. That's why Paul puts forth the objection, Is there unrighteousness with God? And then quickly says, God forbid. But you see... This isn't flattering about human nature, is it? This doesn't flatter your ego when the Bible tells you what a rotten, low-down crud you are in the depth of your soul and heart, does it? Doesn't flatter mine. And people want to turn away from that. They want to turn away from painful, terrible truth and pretend it really isn't so. And most people blot out of their minds as quickly as they see it, the words in these few verses, because of the awful picture of human nature that it gives them, their own human nature as well as others. But the truth is, there's nothing in us that's good except what God in His grace has put there. All the goodness any person has is a gift of God's grace. Without the grace of God, we would all be citizens of hell. People do not like that. That is a terrible, 
terrible truth to have to face. Most people do not choose to face it. But that's Paul's answer. When a man rises up against the sovereign grace of God and begins to say, God's not fair, he's unrighteous to do it that way, Paul says, God forbid. No, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he has compassion upon whom he will have compassion, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That's Paul's answer. Well, people sit back. You know, the human mind's a marvelous thing. It can come up with more wrong answers than any machine ever devised by any other source. So the natural mind begins to think about that and reason about it, and it comes up with the second objection. The second argument that's supposed to blow sovereign grace completely away. And the human mind says, oh, well then, if that's the way it is, if everything everybody's doing is according to the will of God, if God has let some people be bad, and He's made some people be good, then everybody's doing what God wants. Well, then, if everybody's doing what God wants, why does he get mad at anybody? And why does he punish anybody? Why does he punish a rapist and send him to hell? He let him do it, didn't he? He was doing the will of God, and God let him, didn't he? Why does God send him to hell? Or as Paul says it, verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, God didn't let people be bad because it pleased him to let them be bad. That is, in the sense that he liked to see bad stuff done but didn't want to get his hands dirty. He didn't do it for that reason. He endured it. He let them do it to simply endure for a season, giving them every opportunity themselves to cease and yet proving by their failure to cease that it wasn't in them to do so. And for the same length of time, verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Two things were being accomplished by God long-suffering evil. He was letting man and fallen angels prove by their works for thousands of years that creatures without God could not attain righteousness. And at the same time, he was working out a plan to redeem his chosen people. And so, you see, it did not make God happy that there was evil in the sense of this objection. It didn't make God happy because he had let some people be evil and they were. He was wanting them to stop being evil and be good and they wouldn't. One of the objections that is ended forever by God doing this is the objection that Satan, fallen angels, and unrepentant men could have in eternity if God hadn't let them do it. If they could stand up before God, if God had not let them have plenty of time to try every possible way, and they could have said, look, we had one more plan here, and you didn't let us put this one into place. Sure, we failed everywhere else. We did rotten and wrong and everything else, but we had a real good... We finally learned. We finally had figured it out, God, and we had one more plan to work, and you, you rotten stink, wouldn't let us do it. Now you're going to send us to hell and didn't give us a complete fair chance after we learned by our mistakes. 
See, they could always say that to God, couldn't they? And being as how they haven't tried that one last way, they might be right, mightn't they? So what does God do? He lets them have enough thousands of years to try every conceivable way until they start repeating themselves over and over and over. And then he wraps it up. And then nobody, devil or angel or man, can say, well, if you'd just let us try one more plan, because they tried them all. And they all went rotten. This is why Paul writes, for instance, in Romans 3, in verse 4, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. One of the things that God accomplishes by giving man several thousand years to try it over and over again every way he wants to, and giving Satan thousands of years to devise ways and means for man to try, is so they will exhaust all possible alternatives and prove thereby that nothing that man or devil does without God can come to naught. An unanswerable plan and program. When God finally brings about the day of judgment, there will not be one devil standing there, and a devil's a fallen angel. There will not be one man standing there, nor one woman, nor one child, that can conceive of another way to do it that hadn't been tried already and proven to be a dead end. God is giving man just what man has demanded from God. A certain amount of free reign, free enough reign to try every way he can conceive in his heart. And then God lets it work out to its ultimate conclusion, which is failure. One of the greatest ways that God punishes people is told us in the book of Acts, when it says, He suffered them to walk after their own hearts for a season. Why? Because he also rewards them according to their doings. He lets them suffer the fruits of their own, the outcomes, the effects of their own ideas. You've often heard that little saying, be careful what you pray for, God may give it to you. <laughs> I think it was, uh, oh, what was the fellow's name? The British satirist back in the 1800s one of my favorite writers, and I can't even think of the fellow's name, but he said one time, when God gets it in for somebody and really wants to get even with them, he answers their prayers. <laughs> and he had a certain amount of truth in that because many times we pray for things that it's really stupid to pray for. And it's the mercy of God he doesn't answer that prayer. That's why we have to study the Scriptures and find out what to pray for so we pray aright. Because we're praying to a merciful God who will not answer all of our prayers because they're so foolish and short-sighted sometimes. So Paul's argument, you see, is that this is the way we're made. And it's foolish for us to argue against the Maker. How can a pot argue with the potter because it was made into a chamber pot instead of a piece of fine china. That doesn't even make good sense, does it? 
But you know, the way Paul has phrased his answer here, there are several extremely interesting points that we need to notice. For instance, notice the same lump. Verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Same lump. I want to tell you something. There's an extremely important body of doctrine involved in the two words, same lump. You might say, how could you get anything important out of a lump? It's all the difference in the world. I'll show you how it's done. You've all heard of a man named John Calvin. Now, remember me telling the members of this church over and over again, don't ever tell anybody you're a Calvinist. Tell them you're Calvinistic. I'm going to show you why I'm not a Calvinist. And I'm going to show you why I am Calvinistic. It's time to answer that question now. All right? I am Calvinistic. In fact, really, I'm hyper-Calvinistic. I'm Calvinistic. When you put that I-C on the end, it means like. And when you say hyper-Calvinistic, it means like Calvin, only more so. Because, you see, Calvin wasn't really a Calvinist. Calvin was an Arminian. Calvin really and truly believed in salvation by works, but the way he explained it was, as he said, well, God absolutely predestinates everything that comes to pass, and he predestinated all of his elect people's good works of accepting Christ and confessing him as Savior and so forth. So really, that was all part of God's grace and part of his election, and since he predestinated you fulfilling that condition, then that's salvation by grace. Well, look at what that does from a practical standpoint. From a practical standpoint, there's no difference between that and a free willer, is there? You're still doing all these little works. You're still doing the work, the will system. You're still doing the work system. But now we just call it grace. Now, granted, I've oversimplified, but I have not avoided the point by that oversimplification. I've cut right to the point. You scratch a Calvinist and you'll find an Arminian. You scratch a, a Calvinist that follows the teachings of John Calvin and you will find a person that really and truly believes in salvation by free will and works because they will then next claim that God has predestinated all the decisions of free will and he's predestinated all the works. So therefore, make the decision and do the works because God fixed it that way if you're his elect. You're right back in the boat. You've got the system of works again. And he does it all with a lump. <laughs> How does he do it with a lump, you ask? I'm going to show you. Now notice, the potter has power over the clay of the same lump. Now let's look at the potter first, because that's the illustration Paul gives us. And back in the prophets, God uses this concept of a potter in clay and so forth to show how he works with Israel and the nations. What does a potter do? Well, he's sitting there and he wants to make a vessel. He's got a prepared tub of clay a prepared tub of clay. And he reaches into that clay and he doesn't say now what part of it looks like a chamber pot, nor does he say what part looks like a teacup. He doesn't care. He's going to scoop in there and take out a lump and make whatever he wants out of it. If he wants a chamber pot, it's going to be a chamber pot. If he wants a teacup, it's going to be a teacup. If he wants a saucer, it's going to be a saucer. Because, you see, the saucer, the chamber pot, and the teacup are not in the clay. It's in the mind of the potter. Give him the clay and he can make whatever he wants to out of it. So the potter just dips in and takes any old lump, pops it down on his potter's wheel, and starts to work on it. 
However, there are some things in the clay that can change things. How many times have you ever seen an expensive piece of fine china with a stick poking out of the side of it or a piece of straw or maybe a rock embedded over in the side? And how many times have you said to a jeweler, you expect me to pay $50 for a porcelain teacup that's got a rock in it? And he says, well, it's in the clay. (laughs) Doesn't happen that way, does it? No. You see, there can be defects in that lump of clay. There can be pieces of straw, twigs, rocks in that clay that won't permit that piece of clay to be made into anything except a chamber pot or something similar. Because who cares about a chamber pot? I mean, when's the last time you examined a chamber pot? You know, you know all you want sufficient aim, and that's it. <laughs> you don't care what it's decorated like, what it looks like, or what it's constructed out of. It's irrelevant. So that potter begins to work with that piece of lump, and what does he find? He finds a rock in it, a pebble, a stick. And he's wanting to make a teacup. So what does he do? He stops his wheel. He takes that lump of clay and he puts it over in a reject bin. And he reaches down, dips into that clay, takes out another lump and starts over. And as he fashions and shapes his teacup or saucer or plate or whatever it is he's making, if that clay has no defects in it, that clay becomes what he wants it to be. And then later on when he wants to make chamber pots and drinking, you know, water pots and utility jugs and stuff like that. He reaches down in the reject pile. And, of course, he'll still throw away the big rocks and stuff, what few are in there. He'll pull out the twig and throw it away, but then he'll reshape the clay. Because it doesn't matter in that kind of vessel. It's only going to be a utility pot anyway. Now, that's how potters work. Now, Paul says, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor because of defects found in the clay. Not because the potter's spinning along and he reaches over and picks up a stick and jobs it in and says, Oh, you rotten, lousy clay, look what you've done. And then throws it in the reject bin. Doesn't work like that. Takes a lot of time to prepare that clay. He tries to get all all that out before he puts it in the bin to start with. He finds some things in there, you see. Extremely important concept because now let's focus in on that lump. What is a lump? It can be a lump of anything. What does the word lump mean in English? Have you ever looked the word lump up? The word lump basically means a formless or shapeless mass of substance. A formless or shapeless mass of substance. It's just a gob. (laughs) gob, you know, that's a pile. (laughs) Doesn't matter of what, just whatever. A lump of whatever. A shapeless, formless mass of substance. But now the interesting thing about the word lump here is it translates a Greek word, which also literally means lump. And the definition of the Greek word that means lump also is a shapeless or formless mass of substance. An exact and perfect translation of the word in the English version. Now, the important thing to note is a lump is something that's there as opposed to something that's not there. Now, if I were to say, here's a lump, you might begin to doubt my sanity. 
But if I pick up a handful of clay or a pile of cement or something like that, you'd a gob of something, i say, here's a lump. You'd say, yeah, that's a lump, all right. See, it's a lump of something. It's not a lump of nothing. Extremely important concept. The word lump, among other things, implies that something is there existing. It's a lump of substance. Substance exists. It's stuff. It's there. It's tangible. You say, I still don't see the point. I'm getting there, but I want to get there with no holes behind me. Now, of the same lump, he makes one vessel unto honor, one unto dishonor. Before God, like the potter, before God, like the potter, ever started fashioning vessels, he started with a lump to make them out of. And the good vessels and the bad vessels were all made from the same lump. Lump of what? Well, now, there are two interesting words. Supra-lapsarianism. and sub-lapsarianism. Now, don't worry about the Arianism part of it. That's just a little suffix that's tacked on to tell you it's a system of thought. <laughs> now, that leaves us with supralapse and sublapse. Well, forget the supra and the sub for right now. Look at lapse. What's a lapse? Elapse means to fall, doesn't it? That's literally the meaning of the word, fall. Elapse is to fall. If, normally it means to fall short of a mark, but it means to fall. Elapse is a fall. What supra mean? It means before. What sub mean? It means after. So you've got a fall out here. And if you have a suprafall, it's, it's above or before. If it's below the fall, it's under, which is what sub, you know, like submarine, under the sea. Under or after. Depends. See, if you're going up or down, if, if, if the direction's this way, then above is before fall, and sub or super, uh, sub is after or under the fall. So that's what that means. So what is Lapsarianism? It means the doctrine of the fall. Superlapsarianism means the doctrine of something before the fall, and sublapsarianism means the doctrine of something after the fall. You say, well, that doesn't make much sense. I know, but I'm getting there. Slow and easy. Like I say, I don't want any holes behind me when I'm done. Now, let's look at these two positions, these two Arianisms. Let's look at supra, and let's look at sub. Supralapsarianism, sublapsarianism. Because these doctrines involve concepts about how God figured out he was going to make creation. Supra is represented by John Calvin. Sub is represented by Scripture or the Bible. And I'm going to prove that John Calvin's doctrine is not scriptural. And I'm going to prove it with these couple of verses we're looking at. Now, I didn't say that everything Calvin taught wasn't scriptural. I said what he's taught about this specific subject, about the lump, 
Calvin's lumpology stinks, all right? <laughs> he hasn't got a biblical lumpology. That's what I'm trying to say. All right, now let's look at it closer. When Calvin was trying to figure out how God planned everything and trying to figure out how God ordered his decrees before he made the world, we can kind of picture that. You know, imagine God leaning. I'm a, as Paul would say, I speak as a man, I speak foolishly. Kind of imagine God leaning back in a big recliner chair, a lazy boy. All right, he's got him a big old Diet Coke sitting there, and he's under the cool breeze is blowing, and he's got his scratch pad on his lap, and he says, now I'm going to make the world. Now how am I going to go about it? Kind of like you'd plan a house. And he starts sketching out ideas on his scratch pad. Now what Calvin says is, is when God laid out his decrees, when God in his mind planned the order in which he would produce creation. This is how God did it. <laughs> this is Calvin's idea. He said the first thing that God decided he was going to do is he was going to elect some people to go to heaven and he was going to elect some people to go to hell. In other words, Calvin says, in God's mind, the first thing that God said is, I'm going to make some folks to go to heaven, and I'm going to make some folks to burn in hell. You say, well, that sounds reasonable. It does until you look at what else God decided, according to Calvin. Then God says, now how am I going to get folks in heaven, and how am I going to get folks in hell? I've got to have a reason for it. I mean, it wouldn't be fair if I just went up and said, I'm going to make you go to hell. I've got to figure out a way to kind of work it around. So God says, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to work out a plan of salvation. All right, now, if I'm going to get these folks in heaven, I've got to plan how to get them there. I've got to plan how to save them. And that means I've got to plan how not to save the other bunch. So the first decree in God's mind was the decree of election. The second decree was the decree to save or the plan of salvation. Now God's got that worked out. He says, now what I need to do is get some folks, get some actual warm bodies to work with. So he decrees to create then. Number three is the decree to create. I'm going to make it. <laughs> then let's see, after I've made it, what's the next thing I've got to do? I've got to permit the folks I don't want to get saved to jump off the ship. So I've got to permit the fall. He decrees to permit the fall. And then, once that's done, all he's got to do is implement the plan. So then, the decree to begin. Now, that's what John Calvin says God thought up. <clears throat> now, there's a problem with that. In order to have something exist, you've got to create it. It's not enough to plan to create it. You've got to create it. Because if you haven't created it, it's not there. And John Calvin has elected some people to go to heaven. And John Calvin has got some people elected to go to hell before they were ever created, before they were ever there. You see it? You see it? Calvin has got these folks sent to hell before they're ever made. And he's got these folks sent to heaven before they're ever made. Before there is ever a lump. Before there is ever a lump. John Calvin's made some to heaven 
and made some to hell without a lump. That means what? That means there's two different groups to start with. Even if you have an imaginary lump, you've got two different imaginary lumps. You don't have and can't have the same imaginary lump. Do you see that? Do you see that? If you do, rejoice. Because if you'd paid $25,000 and earned a Ph.D. from most, uh, most Presbyterian seminaries, they'd have you so screwed up by now you couldn't see it. Because that's what most of their system is taught. How to see an imaginary one lump, two lump. <laughs> you, look at, you ever notice how if you, look at, if you look at something, you look at those two fingers cross-eyed, they look like one? That's what a lot of that education does. It teaches you how to look cross-eyed and see two things as one. What did Paul say? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and one unto dishonor? God's decision to break one for honor and one for dishonor is preceded by a lump of existing substance. And that is totally impossible in Calvin's system. Now I'm going to show you why I'm Calvinistic. I'm going to show you why the Bible is Calvinistic. But remember, the IC on the end means like Calvin. It doesn't mean an identity. It means a similarity. Somebody says, well, how can you be like and different? You ever seen a mirror image? That mirror image is just like you, isn't it? It's also just exactly opposite. It's reversed, isn't it? Its right side is your left side. Its left side is your right side. It's exactly like you and exactly opposite. John Calvin has a mirror image of Bible doctrine. And the similarity fools people so much they don't notice the reversal. Now, what's the Bible teach? Well, first of all, it all starts with a lump of the same lump. So the Bible teaches that in the order of decrees, God first decreed to create. Now he's got him a lump. See? He's got a lump to start with. <laughs> now he can do anything he wants to. He doesn't have to imagine it at all. It's there. So God puts down on his scratch pad, first thing I'm going to do is create the universe and the world and folks. Then I'll have something to work with. The next thing the Bible teaches that God did is he decreed to permit the fall. He decreed to permit the fall. Now, what happened in the fall of Adam and Eve? When they transgressed and went into sin, what actually happened to them? They became sinners. Not only them, but all of the race became sinners in them. Now you see what's happening. God has now got a fallen lump. A fallen lump. It was made in the image of God. God created his lump, then fashioned it after himself. Then man sinned and lost the image of God, and now it's a fallen lump. Now, now the Bible teaches that God devised a plan of a salvation. God says, well, here are all these fallen people. Now I've got to save somebody. What kind of plan am I going to use to get rid of sin 
and establish righteousness and put righteousness into human beings. How am I going to do that? After God devised the means, after God devised the means of putting righteousness into people, and devised the overall plan, the next decree was the decree of election. Since salvation is by God's will and not man's, and since man in sin cannot do anything to please God, either nobody gets saved or God picks somebody to get saved. Now, what's the fairest way to pick somebody to get saved if you don't want to be unfair to the folks that aren't picked? Well, to put it in plain, simple language, it goes like this. Any, meeny, miny, mo. This one stays and this one goes. Or to put it in Bible language, the children neither having been born, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that willeth. It was said unto her, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. When God makes that choice of election, He does not look at anything in the person, good or bad. He just picks this one and this one and this one and this one with no consideration of good or bad at all. That makes it fair. Somebody says, well, it's not so fair for the one that wasn't picked. Yes, it is. Because what if God hadn't picked him? Where's he going? What a hell. Well, what if God hadn't picked anybody? Where's he going? To hell. What's the difference? See, God picking somebody to get saved did not hurt the unsaved at all. They were going to hell before God made his choice. They're going to hell after he makes his choice. What's the difference? You say, yeah, but, but, but some people are going to heaven and others are going to hell with no chance. Well, the ones that are going to heaven are going without chance. It wasn't by chance. It was by God's choice. You say, but God favored them over there. No, He didn't. He didn't pick anything in them. Remember, He made no choice based on anything in them, good or evil. Therefore, He didn't favor anybody over anybody else. If God had said, now these are the good folks and those are the bad folks, and I'm going to pick the good folks because they're good, God would have favored somebody. And the Bible tells us God is no respecter of persons. Therefore, He cannot make any consideration of good or bad in anybody. If He does, that's unfair. Because all men, you see, are sinners. All men are lost. What God is going to do is make provision to deliver a large number of people that would otherwise have gone to hell if He had done nothing. And then finally, after God has made His choice, then the last decree is the decree to begin, decree to initiate. He actually does the creation then, you see. Now look at those two systems. Elect, then plan of salvation, then he creates, then he lets them fall, and then he begins to work it all out. Under sublapsarianism, God first creates. He decrees to create. Then he decrees or decides to permit the human race to fall. Then he plans salvation, and he elects those that will be saved and those that will stay. And then he begins. Now do you see the difference the word lump makes? Now do you see why Calvin's doctrine is wrong? 
Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Of the same lump. Supralapsarianism or Calvinism is an erroneous doctrine. It will not substantiate the plain, simple English wording of Romans 9, 20, 21, 22, 23. It simply will not stand the test. It's wrong lumpism. <laughs> the Bible teaches right lumpism. <laughs> and what's the difference between a wrong lump and a right lump? A wrong lump is imaginary. A right lump is really there. He's got, Calvin has got God choosing before there was a lump. And then if you're going to imagine a lump, you have to imagine a heavenly lump and a hellish lump. And that's two different lumps. And the Bible says of the same lump. Now that's kind of hairy doctrine, I'll admit. That's graduate level stuff. But it's important. It's excruciatingly important. And look how long I took to say all of that. And Paul says it in three or four verses. You see, I wouldn't have to stand up here and go through all this rigmarole if people would just accept what the book said in fifth grade English. But people struggle against it because it strikes out against their most carnal, idealistic, selfish ideas. And they try in every way possible to avoid what the book is saying. And it is necessary to drive it home so there's no holes when we're done. Now, there's another point or two we want to look here. Notice, this similarity of a potter and the clay is just that. It's a similarity. It's not an exactitude. Because, let's face it, clay doesn't live and breathe. Clay has no will, no mind. Clay has no ability to self-act. So, see, it's only a similarity that teaches a point. It's not an exact parallel. Because there are differences in human beings. And when the potter makes a chamber pot, kind of like John Calvin said, he started out to make a chamber pot. When the potter makes a fine piece of china, he started out to make a fine piece of china. And chamber pot or china, it's what the potter made it. But there is not that exact parallel between God and man. There's only the similarity of a potter starting the process with the clay. Notice how Paul makes this distinction. He says in verse 22 and 23 where he explains the illustration of the potter. He says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Now look at the two verbs in those sentences. Look at that verb fitted to destruction and look at that phrase he hath afore prepared unto glory. Do you notice any difference there? It does not say he fitted to destruction. But it does say he had afore prepared unto glory. See, there is where the slight difference is. The people that are fitted unto destruction are not said to be fitted that way by God. This is the second great blow against John Calvin's scheme because John Calvin said that God elected people to hell. He uses the word reprobate. You know, election, reprobation. 
He said, God decided to save, that's election. God decided to damn, that's reprobation. So John Calvin's got a decree of election and a decree of reprobation. But I don't read that in that verse 22. I don't see any he in there. Somebody says, well, it's implied. I don't think so. Why didn't he imply it in verse 23? He out and said it in verse 23, which he had a four prepared unto glory. We are specifically told that the vessels of mercy are prepared for glory by God. There is no such specific statement about the vessels fitted to destruction. Let's find out how those vessels were fitted to destruction. And let's remember, we're passing out of the similitude of the potter and the clay now, and we're passing over into the reality of the human race, human beings, thinking, reasoning individuals. How are these vessels of destruction fitted to destruction? Exactly what's the process that destroys them? Is it God saying, I'm going to make you a chamber pot? Or is it some other way? Well, we don't have to speculate. We're given an extensive explanation by Paul in Romans over in chapter 5. Over in chapter 5 in verses 15 through 19. Verses 15 through 19. Paul says this. Talking about the sin of Adam. Talking about the sin of Adam, Paul says. Romans 5, 15 through 19. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. See, right off the bat, they're not exactly the same. They're very similar, but there's some distinct differences between how folks get damned in Adam and how folks get saved in Christ. There are a lot of similarities, but there's some definite differences. And he starts it off by saying, not as the offense, so also the free gift. He's going to dwell now on the differences. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more by the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. I'm, so I skipped a verse. Verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. See the contrast? Then verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men and the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You see the contrast? Adam's sin was what messed up the human race. Christ's obedience was what delivered the saved portion. Now, who was Adam? Adam was a man, the first man. Who was Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ was God. Isn't that what Paul emphasized right here in Romans 9? Remember me making that point? Verse 5 of Romans 9, Whose are the fathers? 
and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Christ is God. Who was it that put righteousness in fallen man? God did it. Therefore, he prepared the vessels of mercy unto glory, didn't he? Who was it that fitted the lost human race for hell by putting sin in them? It was Adam, wasn't it? Therefore, God did not fit them for destruction, did he? That's why he is not in here, and that's why he is not implied here. When it says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction because they were fitted by Adam and not by God. You see, create, permit the fall, figure out the plan of salvation, then elect who the saved are going to be and then do it. But John Calvin's got God making them for heaven and John Calvin's got God making them for hell. John Calvin's wrong. It's not done that way. It's not done that way. And so, finally, we see the sum up in verse 24. Even us, these are the vessels of mercy, you see, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Very quickly, look at Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 11. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. That's why Galatians 3.29 says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. A Chinaman that belongs to Christ is an heir of Abraham and, of his, and counted as his seed. A black man that belongs to Christ is an heir with Christ and counted as Abraham's seed. That's why it says the children of the promise are counted for the seed. If you belong to Christ, you're a child of promise. And if so, you're an heir of Abraham and heirs Abraham's seed and counted for the seed. And if you're a Jew that descends directly from Abraham and is pure blood and doesn't have Christ, you're not in the bag. You don't count. Your race means nothing. It's by grace, not race. That means I'm setting a timer for those of you that are at home wondering what's happening. All right. Now, what this gives us very simply is this. The fourth and last of the really important principles that we've got to understand in order to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11. And really it's part of the first one when I said there were two Israels because really this identifies what composes the spiritual Israel, the people that are the people of God. Verse 24, Even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You see, the thing is, spiritual Israel, the true Israel of God, is composed of two parts. Called Jews plus called Gentiles. This group is the vessels of mercy. This group 
is the Israel of God, the true Israel of God, the Israel which is Israel. Now, we'll stop here and continue at this point next week, Lord willing. In the meantime, if you'll listen to this,